Fourth Reverie, Section 1, Part 6 of Reveries of a Bachelor by Eke Marvel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Apennines. I shook her hand, and in an hour afterward was passing, with my friend, by the Trajan Forum, toward the deep shadow of San Maggiore, which lay in our way to the mountains. At sunset we were wandering over the ruin of Adrian's villa, which lies upon the first step of the Apennines. Behind us the vesper bells of Tivoli were sounding, and their echoes floating sweetly under the broken arches. Before us, stretching all the way to the horizon, lay the broad Campagna, while in the middle of its great waves, turned violet-coloured by the hues of twilight, rose the grouped towers of the Eternal City, and lording it among them all, like a giant, stood the black dome of St. Peter's. Day after day we stretched on over the mountains, leaving the Campagna far behind us. Rocks and stones, huge and ragged, lie strewn over the surface right and left. Deep yawning valleys lie in the shadows of the mountains that loom up thousands of feet, bearing, perhaps, upon their tops old castellated towns, perched like birds' nests. But mountains and valleys are blasted and scarred. The forests, even, are not continuous, but struggle for a livelihood, as if the brimstone fire that consumed Nineveh had withered their energies. Sometimes our eyes rest on a great white scar of the broken calcareous rock, on which the moss cannot grow, and the lizards dare not creep. Then we see a cliff beetling far aloft, with the shining walls of some monastery of holy men glistening at its base. The wayside brooks do not seem to be the gentle offspring of bountiful hills, but the remnants of something greater, whose greatness has expired, they are turbid rills, rolling in the bottom of yawning chasms. Even the shrubs have a look, as if the Volscian war-horse had trampled them down to death, and the primroses and the violets by the mountain path alone look modestly beautiful amid the ruin. Sometimes we loiter in a valley, above which the goats are browsing on the cliffs, and listen to the sweet pastoral pipes of the Apennines. We see the shepherds in their rough skin coats, high over our heads. Their herds are feeding, as it seems, on ledges of a hand's breadth. The sweet sound floats and lingers in the soft atmosphere, without a breath of wind to bear it away, or a noise to disturb its melody. The shadows slant more and more as we linger, and the kids begin to group together. And as we wander on, through the stunted vineyard in the bottom of the valley, the sweet sound flows after us, like a river of song, nor leaves us till the kids have vanished in the distance, and the cliffs themselves become one dark wall of shadow. At night, in some little meagre mountain town, we stroll about in the narrow passageways, or wander under the heavy arches of the mountain churches. Shuffling old women grope in and out. Dim lamps glimmer faintly at the side altars, shedding horrid light upon painted images of the dying Christ. Or, perhaps, to make the old pile more solemn, there stands some beer in the middle, with a figure or two kneeling at the foot, and ragged boys move stealthily under the shadows of the columns. Presently comes a young priest in black robes, and lights a taper at the foot, and another at the head, for there is a dead man on the bier, 
and the parched, thin features look awful under the yellow light of the tapers, in the gloom of the great building. It is very, very damp in the church, and the body of the dead man seems to make the air heavy, so we go out into the starlight again. In the morning the western slopes wear broad shadows, and the frosts crumble on the herbage to our tread. Across the valley it is like summer, and the birds, for there are songsters in the Apennines, make summer music. Their notes blend softly with the faint sounds of some far-off convent bell, tolling for morning mass, and strike the frosted and shaded mountainside with a sweet echo. As we toil on, and the shaded hills begin to glow in the sunshine, we pass a train of mules loaded with wine. We have seen them an hour before, little black dots twining along the white streak of footway upon the mountain above us. We lost them as we began to ascend, until a wild snatch of an Apennine song turned our eyes up, and there, straggling through the brush, they appeared again. A foot-slip would have brought the mules and wine-casks rolling upon us. We keep still, holding by the brushwood, to let them pass. An hour more, and we see them toiling slowly, mule and muleteer, big dots and little dots, far down where we have been before. The sun is hot and smoking on them in the bare valleys. The sun is hot and smoking on the hillside, where we are toiling over the broken stones. I thought of little Enrica when she said, The spring was coming. Time and again we sit down together, my friend and I, upon some fragment of rock, under the broad-armed chestnuts that fringe the lower skirts of the mountains, and talk through the hottest of the noon of the warriors of Sila and of the Sabine women, but oftener of the pretty peasantry and of the sweet-faced Roman girl. He, too, tells me of his life and loves, and of the hopes that lie misty and grand before him. Little did we think that in so few years his hopes would be gone, and his body lying low in the Adriatic, or tossed with the drift upon the Dalmatian shores. Little did I think that here, under the ancestral wood, still a wishful and blundering mortal, I should be gathering up the shreds that memory can catch of our Apennine wandering, and be weaving them into my bachelor dreams. Away again upon the quick wing of thought, I follow our steps, as after weeks of wandering, we gained once more a height that overlooked the Campagna, and saw the sun setting on its edge, throwing into relief the dome of St. Peter's, and blazing in a red stripe upon the waters of the Tiber. Below us was Palestrina, the Praeneste of the poets and philosophers, the dwelling-place of, I know not how many, emperors. We went straggling through the dirty streets, searching for some tidy-looking Osteria. At length we found an old lady who could give us a bed, but no dinner. My friend dropped in a chair disheartened. A snub-looking priest came out to condole with us. And could Palestrina, the frigidum preneste of Horace, which had entertained over and over the noblest of the Colonna, and the most noble Adrian, could Palestrina not furnish a dinner to a tired traveller? "'Si, signore,' said the snub-looking priest. "'Si, signorino,' said the neat old lady, and away we went upon a new search. And we found bright and happy faces, 
especially the little girl of twelve years, who came close by me as I ate, and afterward strung a garland of marigolds, and put it on my head. Then there was a bright-eyed boy of fourteen, who wrote his name, and those of the whole family, upon a fly-leaf of my book, and a pretty, saucy-looking girl of sixteen, who peeped a long time from behind the kitchen door, but before the evening was gone, she was in the chair beside me, and had written her name, Carlotta, upon the first leaf of my journal. When I woke, the sun was up. From my bed I could see over the town the thin, lazy mists lying on the old campground of Pyrrhus. Beyond it were the mountains, which hide Frasciati and Monte Cave. There was old Colonna, too, that, like an eagle's nest, hangs on the crest of purple Apennine. As the mist lifted, and the sun brightened the plain, I could see the road, along which Scylla came fuming and maddened after the Mithridatean war. I could see, as I half-dreamed and half-slept, the frightened peasantry whooping to their long-horned cattle, as they drove them on tumultuously up through the gateways of the town and women with babies in their arms, and children scowling with fear and hate, all trooping fast and madly, to escape the hand of the avenger. Alas, ineffectually, for Scylla murdered them, and pulled down the walls of their town, the proud Palestrina. I had a queer fancy of seeing the nobles of Rome, led on by Stefano Colonna, grouping along the plain, their corselets flashing out of the mists, their penance dashing above it, coming up fast, and still as the wind, to make the mural praeneste, their stronghold against the last of the tribunes, and strangely mingling fiction with fact, I saw the brother of Voltaire de Montreal, with his noisy and bristling army, crowd over the campagna, and put up his white tents, and hang out his showy banners on the grassy knolls that lay nearest my eye. But the knolls were all quiet, there was not so much as a strolling contadino on them to whistle a mimic fife-note. A little boy from the inn went with me upon the hill to look out upon the town and the wide sea of land below, and whether it was the soft warm April sun, or the grey ruins below me, or whether the wonderful silence of the scene, or some wild gush of memory, I do not know. But something made me sad. Why so sad? said the quick-eyed boy. The air is beautiful, the perche cosi pensierso, scene is beautiful. Signori is young, why is he sad? And is Giovanni never sad? said I. Quasi mai, said the boy, and if I could travel as Signore and see other countries, I would be always gay. May you always that, said I. The good wish touched him. He took me by the arms and said, Go home with me, signore. You were happy at the inn last night. Go back, and we will make you gay again. If we could be always boys. I thanked him in a way that saddened him. We passed out shortly after from the city gates, and strode on over the rolling plain. Once or twice we turned back to look at the rocky heights beneath which lay the ruined town of Palestrina, a city that defied Rome that had a king before a ploughshare had touched the Capitoline, or the Janiculan hill. The ivy was covering up richly the Etruscan foundations, and there was a quiet over the whole place. 
The smoke was rising straight into the sky from the chimney-tops. A peasant or two were going along the road with donkeys. Beside this, the city was, to all appearance, a dead city. And it seemed to me that an old monk, whom I could see with my glass, near the little chapel above the town, might be going to say mass for the soul of the dead city. And afterward, when we came near to Rome, and passed under the temple tomb of Metella, my friend said, And will you go back now to your home, or will you set off with me to-morrow for Ancona? At least I must say adieu, returned I. God speed you, said he, and we parted upon the Piazza de Venezia, he for his last mass at St. Peter's, and I for the tall house upon the Corso. End of Fourth Reverie, Section 1, Part 6